I'm going to read Psalm 2 again. That was our call to worship. Um, I know, I told the last service, I know that you're not necessarily like dialed in and engaged right at the beginning at the call to worship. So I want to read it again so that we make sure we hear the words of this psalm, and then I'll read from Matthew 21. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. In Matthew chapter 21. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go into the village in front of you. Immediately you'll find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, God, that your word is living and active, that it speaks with your own authority. And God, we pray that our hearts would blossom under its care. We pray, God, that you would rip out the, the weeds of our hearts to make room for flourishing in your love. Father, I pray that our ears would be open, our hearts would be open, and that we would respond to you and come find our refuge in you. Amen. Palm Sunday, the beginning of, of Holy Week, is this uh, really strange story. Uh, we, we mark the, the moments of the life of Jesus on the liturgical calendar. And what I've told you before, and what I'm reminding you now, is we are not playing a game of pretend. We are not pretending that we don't know where the story is going. So when we, when we talk about Jesus being born on Christmas, we're not saying, man, I wonder what's going to happen to him. We know. We know what's going to happen with him. And that actually informs how we read the birth of the Son of God. 
And so what happens as you kind of enter into the story again and again, the layers of knowing pile on top of one another and help us more fully and deeply enter into the story and meditate and reflect on Christ. And so we are reading the story of Palm Sunday, of the triumphal entry. And what we do now as we read Matthew 21 is we hear these notes in the text of something on its way. Everything in this story, Matthew 21, is good. It's exciting. It's, it's pleasant. But what's tragic is that we know where it's heading. That there is, in the, in the score of this text, there are minor keys. There are minor notes that are, that are playing in our ears because what we are hearing is the people acclaiming Jesus, celebrating his entry, and knowing They are going to reject him. They are days away from his crucifixion. And so you you can read this text and almost sort of fill this almost dread building as you read these ironic words. They are hailing this king days away, pages away in your Bible from shouting for his crucifixion. And what is happening when we know that, we experience that, is that we are seeing a breaking. We are, there is a breakage between what the people think is happening and what God is actually doing. And things are happening on different levels. And ultimately, what's going on in that fissuring, this breaking, will split open in the heat of their anger, will pour out on Jesus so that they will delight in his murder. And what we need to do when we come to the the text is we need to allow that breakage between what the people expect and what God is doing to do some work in us so that, one, we might be reminded about what it is that God is truly doing, and, two, what the truth is about who we are. Psalm 2 is preparing us for the work of Jesus. Psalm 2 is this royal messianic psalm. And the imagery in Psalm 2 is is quite shocking. Because in Psalm 2, the nations are are being painted as arrayed against God and shaking their fist at God and saying, we will not be ruled by you. We will rip off our chains. We will not be bound by your rule. And God's response to them is to laugh. He mocks them. And says, you can do whatever you think you want to do. I am setting my king on my hill. The hill being Jerusalem, the place from which the son of David rules. I will set my king on the hill. And what he is going to come and do is take his rod of iron and smash the opposition. He's going to break apart all those who are arrayed against him like a clay pot, shattering them. And so then, therefore, you best see him and recognize who he is and come and kiss the sun and come and find your refuge in him. Now, if you're like me, you read Psalm 2 and you read the description of God not at all troubled by their opposition, of the fact that he, he says, you better serve the Lord in fear and trembling. 
and see his fury and his wrath, because this is going to speak in his wrath. And when you get to the part at the end where it says, kiss the son, find your refuge in him, you kind of say, really? Like, is that safe? Like, should, is this somebody that I should approach like that? Because this person seems both powerful and angry, and I'm not sure if that's the right move. There's something intimidating in Psalm chapter 2. And you need to listen to the intimidation of Psalm chapter 2. Because it is what God intends to do, is break and destroy the rebellion that is arrayed against his own reign. Now the poem is going to teach you one thing, and the narrative is going to add something to it. The psalm is going to say something, and it creates in us this question about what it is the nature of this king. And then the gospel story will begin to fill in the questions. And it's going to tell you a fuller picture, a clearer picture, of what the psalmist is pointing to in his poetry. What we see in Jesus riding into Jerusalem is frankly ridiculous. Jesus is coming into this capital city. It's an important city. It's a real city. There are not many real cities in the ancient Near East. This is a real city. It's not like, you know, New York City big. It's not like that. But it's for real. Like, there's walls. There's a lot of people. There's pretty big buildings compared to the rest of the world. And Jesus is riding into this giant city. And he's doing it on a donkey. On a donkey. Not, not a chariot polished really nice with like four really strong horses pulling it, parading in front of him, this military force and behind him and all the forces of the city there to herald this coming king. Jesus is riding in to Jerusalem on a donkey that doesn't even have a saddle for him to sit on. It's It's got a blanket thrown over it and he's sitting on a donkey. The unglamorous donkey and plodding his way into the city. And Matthew wants us to see the entirety of his gospel is telling you Jesus' story in a particular way so that you see that Jesus is the son of David, the fulfillment of Israel's hopes. And what Matthew is going to keep pointing to is that Jesus is preaching the arrival of a kingdom. And now he's doing this thing that's fulfilling this prophecy out of Zechariah chapter 9. In your Bible, the section is probably set off in quotes and and looks different from what's around it. This is a prophecy from Zechariah chapter 9. And that prophecy in Zechariah starts the same way Psalm 2 does. God's going to smash his enemies. He's going to destroy them, wipe the floor with them. And then it takes this pivot right at this verse that he quotes. And said, so what he's going to do is he's going to ride in on a donkey. And so here is Jesus taking up this prophecy that Matthew points out for us. And you're, you're only left to wonder, how could this possibly be it? Because Matthew has told us, all the Gospels will tell us, what kind of people find themselves attracted to Jesus. They, they are not the ruling authorities of Jerusalem. They are not the powerful or important or respectable people. 
They are the losers. They are the rejects, the dirty, the prostitute, and the tax collector. So when Jesus rides in on this very ho-hum animal, and there are people there to celebrate his entry, his triumph, apparently, who do you think is there? It's these losers that he's hung out with the whole time. And if you would just sort of zoom out for a moment and try to see this as a stranger, the idea that this person on this impromptu parade with these losers celebrating him is the son of David who will abolish all of the enemies that have been listed and described. It's ridiculous. John Calvin, in his commentary on this passage in the Gospels, says the way in which he enters, the crowd that sees him, is in fact important because it tells us what we need to know when we finish Psalm 2. When you come to Psalm 2, and the, the question then becomes, can I kiss this son? Can I find refuge in this king as described? What you need is to see him as clearly as possible, which is precisely why Jesus has come. And that son presents himself in this way. He is the one that rides on a humble donkey, riding in with his loser band of friends. And so when you hear that God is furious with the rebellion that is arrayed against him, and he's laughing and mocking the people who are pushing against him and shaking their fist at him, what you need to see is Jesus is that son. And because of the way that he comes in and because of the way that you see the people that he surrounded himself, you can say, oh, I can trust this one. Look at how he deals with the crowds. Look how in, in all the power that's available to him, he rides in with none of it. He rides in in his victory is arrayed in his weakness, apparently. So when you hear Psalm 2 and see it through the lens of Jesus, you begin to say, this one I can find my refuge in. Now the crowd that's gathered there will be the crowds eventually that are in the city who are around when Jesus is crucified. And what we know about this crowd on, on Palm Sunday and what we will know on Good Friday because we know where the story is going is that these people profoundly misunderstand what it is that God is doing. They, they are excited about Jesus. They celebrate Jesus' entry. It, it feels to them like a triumph. What they do not understand is that Jesus is not doing what they expect him to do. 
And Matthew wants you to see that Jesus is never at any moment out of control of the situation. He is never swept along by this history, this series of events. He is not caught up in the current of history. He is firmly in charge. He tells his disciples, go here, do this, say that, and this will happen. He knows exactly what it is he's doing. Jesus is not caught broadside by the events of Jerusalem. He has walked into them with his eyes wide open, and he is doing exactly what he wants to do. And because it does not look like they want it to look, they will be furious with him. They cannot abide the fact that this king would not bow to their wishes. Jesus will repeatedly in the Gospels say, I will not be who you want. I am who I am. They offer him the throne. They offer him the kingship. And he religiously, he purposefully, repeatedly does not want it. He walks away from it because he is doing what he wants. And this sort of dynamic is infuriating. If you follow Jesus, if you are here today following Jesus, you have undoubtedly been caught in Palm Sunday moments for the entirety of your life with him. You have a very clear idea. This is what God should be doing. If if Jesus was king, this is what it would look like here and now. And you have become so disappointed confused, bitter, angry because the God that you think that you know that you believe in, he is still doing things that you do not expect. And you shake your fist at him. Why would you do this to me? Why would you act this way towards me, towards my friends, towards history? You are entering into the breakage between what you expect and what God is doing. And if you don't listen to what Palm Sunday is telling you, to what Matthew 21 is telling you, you will find it all too easy to reach for the hammer and to shout for the crucifixion of the Son of God. But Jesus was in this moment and remains now entirely in control of the situation at hand. Entirely. He is the king of Psalm 2 who will smash the rebellion that has been put into the world against him. You know, it's not, it's not wrong that the people wanted Jesus to come and defeat Rome. That's not the problem. Rome is terrible. They are experts at, at domination and oppression and murder. They are professional thieves with the might of the largest army in history behind them. 
It is not wrong that they would come and they would want God, they would expect God to come and, and demolish this, this army. It's understandable. It's natural. It's normal. And there are probably things, many things in your life that are the same. You, you are deeply disappointed because of whatever, heartbreak, pain, physical pain, emotional pain, suffering that you have faced, and you are saying, God should take care of this. God should wipe this away. That is natural and normal. That is not what their mistake is. Their mistake is to think that their will and their understanding actually is perfect and precisely what God is doing at that moment, at that time. And the truth is, you don't know any more than these people knew. But we know where the story is going. They will not understand on this Sunday, on Monday, or Tuesday, or Wednesday, or Thursday. They will certainly not understand on Friday. His own disciples will be totally obliterated by heartbreak and doubt. They look at the cross and they say, God's lost. It's over. Jesus lost. On Saturday, they will sit in the shambles of their life. And they will think it is all over. And on Sunday, they will understand everything. They will be able to say, that's what God was doing. It is only in the light of resurrection that the people are properly able to sing the songs that they sang on Sunday. It is only in the face of the resurrected Lord Jesus that they are truly able to sing, this is the king. And the enemies that he was coming to destroy were not the ones that we thought. They were actually worse enemies. And he was doing something way better than we could have ever imagined. You now stand on this side of the cross and of the resurrection. But you and I are still caught up in these currents of suffering and doubt, of our own sin, of wishing that our will was the will of the king on our timetable in the way that we want. We are still this kind of people. And I'm not up here to tell you that everything is going to be resolved if I just give to you the right sequence of stories, then boom, everything feels right. I'm telling you the exact opposite. That when you come and follow Jesus, your life will still feel fissured, broken open, unhealed in some ways. That you will follow Jesus and you will not know what God is doing. And some of the worst moments, your biggest failures in following Jesus will be the moments when you are absolutely sure that God is going to do exactly what you've told him to do. And he is going to work it out exactly as you expect it and desire. And your world will fall down when exactly not that thing will happen. That is still the legacy of the people who follow Jesus. And it is not wrong for God to, to, to want God to come and heal disease and to end suffering of all kinds. That is not wrong. What I'm telling you, though, is that God is going to do something that you cannot see, that you cannot expect. And it is better than whatever you are hoping for. And you may only ever fully understand when you see the resurrected Lord Jesus 
with your eyes. It may be to the end of your life and beyond before you can finally see, oh, that's what you were doing. And because you have seen Jesus, you can trust him until then. The cry, the the song, Hosanna, is really a prayer. Save me now. It is is both a plea and a celebration. It's It's a plea that became a praise. Save me, the one who saves. And that song is to be your song now and forever. We are not leaving the triumphal entry behind in the songs that those people sang. We are instead singing them with more clarity. And if you are at a place in your life where you are being torn apart by what you expected and what God apparently seems to be doing, the only proper response then is to see Jesus and to sing this song, Save Me. I can barely trust you. I can barely hold on. I'm barely being carried along in this thing. Save me. Save me. And that song is enough. Because what Psalm 2 has prepared you for is to see the Son, to kiss Him, and to find refuge in Him. You can trust Him. When you don't know anything else, when you don't know how God is going to break the backs of His enemies and make all things right, you can trust Him. And if you can barely muster the faith to trust him, sing this song, save me, save me. If you are here today and you have never sung that song, you you have never looked to Jesus in trust, you have never given up your own control of your own life and turned yourself over into the hands of this king, today is the day. Today is the day. I'm not asking you to trust me or trust a plan or pray a magic prayer and make all things right. I'm saying look at Jesus who would come in gentle and lowly like this and know that you can trust him with the deepest things of your heart. And if you are here today and you have been overwhelmed with fatigue at this thing, that it just feels like you do not know what God is doing in your life, you're right. You often don't, but come back to the place where you started and trust him. And he will ride in and be a refuge forever until you see him face to face. And the light of his resurrected glory will help you see what you cannot now. He is doing things better than you could ask or imagine. Plea with him that he might save you and come find your refuge again. Let me pray for us. Lord God, we thank you that you've ridden in for us. You've come and approached us and that you have taken people like us, confused people who are often wrong about you, and you've put us in your parade, your victory parade. You have always made space for people like us. God, I thank you that it does not require us to know everything or to always get it right, but instead what's required is that we put faith in you, that we trust you, 
And that on you all of our hopes hang, not on ourselves, on you. And you are faithful and true. You accomplish what we need. God, I pray for those who have never trusted you this morning. I pray that they would leave aside any of their expectations or their demands of you. And they will instead say, you do what it is that you want to do. And they would see that they are, they are safe with you doing what is best for them. That you are safe in the deepest and truest way. Even if, it feels, even if it feels like it's unsafe to lose all that control. And God, I pray for those who are weary and discouraged. They have been wounded by the difficult and evil things of this world. I pray that you would help them to sing this song, Hosanna, Hosanna. That they would celebrate that you are the one who actually can save them, who will save them, who does save them. And that you will be their refuge until the very end. God, renew us in our frailty. Renew us in your life. Help us, Father, to see what you are doing in the world and to trust you when we don't. We love you, Lord Jesus, and we thank you that you've loved us first and best. You've rescued us. Amen.